Let's go ahead and uh, open up to 1 Timothy, looking at chapter 5. Does everybody have a handout? There is a stack in the back for sure. I think most of them have kind of made their way back as well. All right. Well, let, me, uh, let me pray for us, and then we'll do a little review, and then look at our passage for today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, the love that you have for us, that you have uh, put on display in Jesus. Uh, thank you that you sent him into the world to live and die and be raised for us. Thank you that we have new life in him. Um, thank you that we can come to your word now and know that uh, we don't come apart from uh, your Spirit's work in us. And we pray that uh, your Spirit would stir up our hearts today and work with your word to give us understanding, uh, to know you more, and to ultimately love and follow you. And we thank you uh, that you are good to us, that you have good purposes for us, and that you can transform and change us uh, in all the ways that we need uh, to be transformed and changed. So bless us this morning, we pray, for your glory and our good. Amen. Okay, uh, Quick review, we're looking at 1 Timothy. This is a letter written by Paul to Timothy, who is in Ephesus. Uh, he needs to put a stop to this false teaching and the false teachers that are at the church. And so this teaching has had some kind of Jewish-Christian combination happening. Uh, there, it involves some sort of misunderstanding of the Old Testament law. There are elements of asceticism, which is this view that through some severe bodily discipline of some sort, you can attain greater spiritual growth and transformation. Keith dealt with that a couple weeks ago at the beginning of chapter 4. Um, and so the, the problem, um, among other things, is that it's resulting in this vain discussion and speculation where there's a lot of arguments, there's a lot of division, and ultimately it's a denial of the gospel. Uh, and one of the interesting things about the way Paul approaches this is that he, he calls us to sort of judge this teaching by its fruit. Um, he doesn't spell out the content of the, uh, of the true teaching as much, nor does he spell out the content of the false teaching. What he focuses on in both, in both situations is the fruit, either positive or negative, that's going to come about by this. And so what he says in chapter 1, verse 5, is that the true gospel results in love. It expresses itself in love. And so um, these false teachers held some kind of uh, official teaching role, as we've said, uh, they may have even been elders, so there's also a whole lot in the letter having to do with the order of the church or the household of God. We'll have more of that this morning. Um, it's in this section where Paul moves into some specific instructions uh, to specific demographics of the church and particular relationships within the church. Um, so what we're going to look at this morning will be verses 1 through 16. And then uh, Keith will pick up the rest of uh, chapter 5 and beginning of 6 next week. Uh, so let me read that now. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 1. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Treat younger men like brothers, older women like mothers, younger women like sisters in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. 
But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, and having a reputation for good works. If she's brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For for some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are really widows. Um, We started listening to Christmas music this morning, full confessional. Uh, November 1st is our arbitrary deadline, uh, or not deadline, it's it's the the arbitrary date in which it's permissible in the Davis household to do that. and, uh, and so it, was, it got me thinking a little bit about uh, what we're talking about this morning. And um, when you think some about Thanksgiving, but especially Christmas, it is one of those times where we have uh, unbelievable expectations for what that holiday is going to be. Um, everybody allows their inner Clark Griswold to come out at that time of year with these grand expectations for, for what a, a family Christmas is going to be. Um, and what's interesting about this is that uh, all of the relational baggage that characterizes our interaction as a family all other 51 weeks out of the year is somehow in our minds going to be done away with during that week. Uh, and so we're going to have this incredible time as a family and uh, everything's going to go as planned. All of those things that we deal with in our relationships the rest of the year are going to magically disappear. The meal's going to be perfect. Time together is going to be rich. And we think this and hope for this, despite the evidence of every single Christmas that we've had before that would show otherwise, right? Um, And I think we could talk about this in a lot of, I mean, there are a lot of different ways to illustrate this, but um, what I want us to see is there's a difference between the ideal of uh, of our time with family at Christmas versus then the, the reality of holidays with family, Okay. Not a knock against my family or anybody's family, um, but it, it, this is how I think this could apply to us. Um, we can bring similar expectations when we come to the church. So in theory, when we start talking about the church as family, and I, I mean, I'm susceptible to this too, it sounds really beautiful and compelling to be involved in one another's lives in such a way that, that we would be described as a family is really wonderful, and it's, a, it's one of the dominant New Testament images for what life in the church is to be, that we are a family. But it's really easy, too, then, to kind of have this lofty ideal for what that would be and bring these kind of naive and idealistic expectations to the church as family. And, and then uh, we say we want real relationships in the church, but then when we're confronted with the reality 
of life in the church and what that would actually mean to be involved with one another in substantial ways, uh, things get a lot more difficult, right? Um, so I think uh, this section of, of 1 Timothy, where it's really all of 5 and then into the first couple of verses of chapter 6, um, deal with these relationships in the church, and it's going to get into sort of the nitty-gritty specific issues that the church at Ephesus is dealing with. So uh, th- there's been this talk of the household of God, and there's that mention over and over again, and we're going to have um, specifically some of this language at the beginning of chapter 5, but then even into the discussion on widows, that has a lot to do with the church as family, but you kind of see like the, uh, how it's not as pretty in practice and the kind of issues that they're having to deal with in this church. So this, this is going to be a, a little snapshot of the life of the people of God being worked out in some of the nitty-gritty kind of everyday details that they're dealing with. And maybe in the end we can talk some about what our specific issues uh, that we face could be. Uh, maybe I'll just conveniently cut our time short, just like always, to uh, prevent the hard conversations, right? Um, here's our focus. Here's what I want us to see and take away from this. This is pretty, pretty general, uh, intentionally so. Because the true gospel makes us the family of God, we must wisely and lovingly meet the needs of our church family. That is a, uh, one of, it may not be uh, all that's being said here, but it's certainly one of the main points that, uh, that Paul's making. Uh, so first, uh, the first couple verses, Timothy's ministry within this family of God. So Paul has just called Timothy to exhort and to teach. He's told, uh, he's told them, don't let them look down on you because of your age. He's called him uh, to, to set an example for them. And so uh, it's quite possible that what Paul wants to do here is head off at the pass a possible misunderstanding of that. And the misunderstanding might be something like this. Well, if I'm afraid people are going to look down on me because of my age, then I might come over the top and be a little uh, firmer, uh, a little more harsh even in how I'm going to deal with people in order to command the respect of those around me, thinking like I can't look soft, right? So I've got to put forward this, um, this very stern kind of outward, uh, outward face towards people. So what, what Paul wants to say here, he's going to speak of how Timothy is to go about exhorting and correcting. So verse 1. I'll just read verses 1 and 2 together and we'll look at these. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. And and another way to to describe that word there, rebuke, is is more of a uh, a call against sharply rebuking an older man. Um, He's saying, don't do this in an unwise and unloving way. Um, Notice what he's not saying to Timothy. He's not saying, don't have those hard conversations that you need to have with those uh, elder men in your church. Okay? He's not saying, uh, avoid hard conversations, avoid saying things that might upset people. He's saying, don't go about doing this in an unwise and unloving way. He's speaking about the manner in which Timothy's going to do this work to which he's been called. So how is he going to do this? He's called instead to encourage him, and the way the, uh, another translation puts it is to appeal to him. Um, he's calling Timothy to be wise and persuasive and compelling in the way in which he's going to talk to these men who are older than he is and the way in which he would go about pastoring them and exhorting them. So um, 
if you're reading this, or maybe you hear that and you think, uh, is Paul calling Timothy to be kind of like slick and like manipulative a little bit here? Um, like work the system a little bit and kind of do an end around on these uh, in the way in which you would exhort them. No, I don't think that's what he's doing. But I think what, what's great, what we can take from this, and this is extraordinarily wise uh, pastoral counsel from Paul, is he's calling Timothy here to think about how he will be, best be heard by these people. Not talking about compromising the content or the message. He's saying, recognize how you are heard by other people. Recognize these relational dynamics that are going to be at work in the church. And take that into account in how you're going to communicate to them. I think this is incredibly wise and incredibly important. So, um, what I'd like to do here is go through each of these relationships that he outlines here. Again, he's using this familial language. He wants to describe the church in terms of, uh, of family. What I want to do is go through each of these and ask the question, put it out for discussion in each, how each of these relationships would be characterized in this way. Um, so, uh, for this first, exhorting older men as fathers. What would characterize a relationship in which Timothy is treating an older man as a father? What are some characteristics of that relationship? Paul says, treat him like a father. What's that going to look like? Honor. Yeah, honor is going to be huge in this. And, that's, and actually, some commentators say that's sort of the driving theme of this entire section because there'll be a direct call to honor widows as well. So, honoring um, this older man. Yeah, what else? Deference. Deference. Okay, yeah. Um, uh, again, wisely interacting, uh, recognizing this, who, this, uh, who this person is and your uh, recognition of relationship with them. What else? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Looking, looking for advice, recognizing that, uh, that there's much to be, uh, learned and, uh, gleaned from, uh, from this older man. Yeah. What else? Humility. Yes. Yeah. Definite humility in how he's approaching them. Any other thoughts? Other? Yeah, Doug. Yeah. Sons that you treat you as father because of the authority. When in actuality, in the Bible, I think we we call it respect. That's the biggest fruit of the father. Yeah, that's a great great qualification for sure. Um, yeah, and even back to last week, it's easy to hear exhort and sort of think that that's going to mean a. Um, we take that negatively. At least maybe that, that I hear that more with a negative tone and what. What Paul has said and what we talked some about last week is that there, there's also this very positive side of exhortation that's one of comfort, that's speaking truth in other ways. It's not, we shouldn't equate exhort with rebuke or something like that. Um, there's kind of a, a positive encouragement and a negative corrective sort of part to it. Yeah. Any other thoughts on that? Okay, how about, oh, Sorry. Excellent, yes. Affection and, and pointing out that it's not a, this is not a business relationship, uh, but one that, that, that is characterized as familial. Again, so huge, that underlying um, recognition of family. 
Okay, and then uh, second part of verse 1 then, uh, to, to relate to older men then as fathers, then exhorting younger men as brothers. Uh, what might characterize a relationship in which Timothy is going to treat a younger man as a brother? Trust? Okay. Loyalty, yeah. Fellowship, yeah. Uh huh. Respect. Oh, interesting. Yeah, substitution. Okay. Yeah, great guidance. Yeah, of a big brother guiding a little brother. Is anybody uh, anybody familiar with uh, Wayne's or Wayne's World? Oh my gosh. I don't even. That, yeah, I was gonna say the Wonder Years. Golly, Wayne's World. That is weird. We can talk about that afterwards. Uh, uh, gosh, Wonder Years. Uh, familiar with Wonder Years, the show? Yes, okay. We, uh, we watched that growing up. And so, um, you remember Wayne, the older brother? Uh, Wayne and Kevin are the two brothers. And Wayne picked on his younger brother, Kevin, all the time. And so there was actually a saying in my house. I was the older brother. I have a younger brother. Where my mom would tell me, don't be a Wayner. Because that, that was like, and it was just common, you didn't need any other explanation. Don't be a waner, you know? Because that's Wayne picks on his younger brother and is a jerk to him all the time, embarrassing him, trying to make him look like a fool. Obviously, uh, what, what Paul's saying here is, is don't be that kind of older brother, right? Uh, be the kind of older brother who's going to, uh, to provide guidance, care, protection, and be, be the sort of older brother that, uh, that cares for the younger brother in a real, in a genuine, loving way. Just like Wayne's World, you know? Um, um, okay, um, okay, exhorting older women as mothers. How, how, what kind of relationship, uh, how would this relationship be, uh, what would characterize this relationship for him to relate to older women as mothers? Yes, more honor. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, gentleness and speech. Overflowing care. Yeah. Yeah, important. Yeah. Uh, and some of the ways that we, you know, that you would look to a father that, that would provide wisdom, there's going to be a kind of wisdom that a mother's going to provide, and you're going to recognize the immense value of that. And, uh, and in all this, Timothy... As a younger, a younger man, younger pastor is, is realizing all of what he can uh, learn from these who have been walking in the faith longer than he has. And remember, too, that it's from his grandmother and his mother that he was taught the things of the Lord initially. So this is, think back to that relationship, that helps out as well. Okay, how about this last one then? Um, exhorting younger women as sisters uh, in all purity... What would characterize a relationship in which Timothy's treating younger women as sisters? What are the issues at work here? Sorry. Protection. Yes. Excellent. What else? Is that you, Tim? Same thing. What else? Security. And if you think about protection and security, this is really important, too. Um, 
I mean, it's obvious, I would think, why he's adding in all purity, right? Uh, and when you use the language of treating somebody as a sister, that's going to characterize the way that you relate to this younger woman. Um, Timothy as a, as a single man and how he's going to relate to a woman, if, if he's viewing her as a sister, that is uh, an important way, right? In all purity. Um, and so protecting, um, that, the way in which that protection would work itself out and that it would protect the, this woman, protect her reputation, protect the way in which she would interact with him and the feelings she might have towards Timothy, protect him and, and his relationship, his feelings, his interaction with this woman, and also protect the church as a whole. Um, because what it's going to do is it's going to protect the church against slander of uh, viewing relationships as being uh, inappropriate in some ways and not wanting to cause any of that or be any cause for slander or uh, inappropriateness within the church. So important to say that with, with all purity, treating them as sisters definitely gets at that. Okay, so the church as a whole in these couple of verses is, is to be viewed as a family and these familial relationships should characterize us. Uh, we are the household of God. We do. We are brothers and sisters to one another. Uh, we are mothers and fathers to one another in this way. And, uh, and so, very compact verses here, all sorts of wisdom in them for us. Okay? Um, any thoughts on that before we move on? Okay. Uh, Timothy then moves into this next section, which is, uh, it was a apparently a particularly difficult situation in the Ephesian church. Um, This is a... How many people have read When Helping Hurts before that book on mercy ministry? Great book that deals with the... uh, It it deals with um, how wise we need to be in extending care and mercy towards people uh, outside and inside the church in order to not hinder them and their growth... Uh, and instead to enable them to flourish, okay? So it's, it's asking this question of kind of the wisdom and, way, and the way in which you'd go about doing uh, mercy ministry. And that's some of what, t- or what, uh, what Paul is applying here in, in the Ephesian church. There is this huge question of widows in this church, and we'll get into some of what that means. So the ministry to uh, and of widows in the family of God is this next section. So why the focus on widows? Well, first, widows in the first century. Um, there's no kind of state welfare system that's in place in the first century. So um, there, there, there's nothing uh, that for people without wage earning ability to be cared for in terms of like kind of some governmental system or something like that. Um, the, their vulnerability as widows come in, it comes in a couple forms. If one, if their, their husbands die, then they potentially face total destitution with no earning power, no way to provide for themselves. And then the other issue was that when some would become, a Christ, would become Christians, it wasn't uncommon for their families to cut them off. And so they're put in a significant place of need, uh, both relationally and financially. And so that's sort of the condition of widows in the first century. It wasn't as though they could get some help from the state in some way, nor was it possible for them to, to earn money at that point. Uh, and this is recognized in the Bible. This is a, there's, there are uh, biblical reasons for all of this as well. And so the, the theme of widows in the Scripture is a huge one. Um, it's always been an issue there, that widows have always been overlooked by society. Uh, and so he, here's a couple 
a number of verses for us to look at. First, God's care for widows that you see expressed uh, in the Psalms and in this one verse in the Proverbs. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. So this is how our God describes himself, reveals himself as a protector of widows. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. And then in Proverbs, the Lord tears down the house of the proud, but maintains the widow's boundaries. So God's heart uh, moves towards those who are in desperate need, um, financially, materially, relationally, culturally. And then he has a call then to the church and to his people, Israel, to care for the widows. So Isaiah 1, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Don't allow them to be used and abused by, this, by society. And then he has really strong words for those who do this exploiting of widows. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. So strong, strong words. And then, of course, this familiar passage in James where he says, religion that's pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And if you remember when we talked some about deacons uh, a few weeks back, this was a big issue in Acts 6, where, these, uh, where the apostles then select uh, these seven who are going to take care of, of the widows. The, the issue that arose was that the, the Gentile widows were not getting their share of the distribution. So this has been an ongoing, um, an ongoing question for the church. How are we going to care for the widows of the church? So that's the situation into which Paul is speaking these words to Timothy. First, he says something about widows and their families in verses 3 through 8. So there's this general call, honor widows who are truly widows. And of course, that, that means more than just a general kind of uh, disposition or of respect towards them. This actually is going to carry some sort of weight to it. Honor them. And that's going to mean providing materially for their needs in that way. And he's obviously saying, I mean, even in this first phrase, honor widows who are truly widows. So the issue is that uh, we would understand that there are some that aren't truly widows, that, that shouldn't be honored in this way and given this help at this time. So first, okay, the care from family. This is what he talks about first, verses 4 and then 7 and 8. So verse 4, but if a widow has children or grandchildren... Let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. Okay, so uh, real practically, why might Paul call the family to be the primary caretakers of these women, if possible? Why practically would he do that, you think? Yes. And that's what some of the reasons he gives, interestingly, in, in verse 4, that showing godliness, um, it's pleasing to the side, uh, in the sight of the Lord. And um, so presumably showing that godliness is, is good for the family. Yeah, it's good for those who are showing that kindness. What else? Yeah, that's it. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's, 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 it's pleasing in the sight of the Lord. Yeah, God delights in the way in which uh, His uh, sacrificial love would be expressed uh, very, in very real ways in the family. Yeah. What else? Yes. That's a great question. Doug's question was, are we called to, um, to explore the dynamic within a family um, who is not currently providing for uh, a widow within their, within their family? Um, I think, yeah, if everybody is within, a case in which that would, I think, definitely be an area to explore and to uh, help pastor and shepherd people would be if everybody is in the same church, um, it doesn't, wouldn't necessarily have to be that way, but I would think that would be a definite example where you have a family and widow within the church. If there's tension in this relationship, if there's a situation where they, the family is refusing to, to care for this widow, then I think, yeah, that does become a, a real opportunity for pastoral care for that family and to explore why that is and working through whatever those issues might be. Yeah. Um. If you think about this too, throughout this, the letter, Paul has talked about how, um, you know, in the requirements for elders, and the requirements for deacons, uh, how they interact within their household becomes a, a part of the qualifications for office as well. And so I think there's some general principle too that says, um, if you don't care for, for a widow within your family, if you don't take care of that person, that's sort of, I think that's indicative of where your heart lies in some ways. It's not to say that there aren't potentially real relational issues to work through and all that kind of thing. But um, the way that we interact within our households is sort of the, uh, I think, can be indicative of the way that we would interact then in the broader family. That seems to be a principle that is underlying a lot of what Paul says. And that would become relevant in this case. Um, so, um, those are maybe some practical reasons. Verses 7 and 8, this gets uh, much stronger in his language about this. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Pretty strong language, right? Okay, what's going on here? Um, first of all, he's not, uh, this is, he's not knocking um, unbelievers in this, in this situation. He's, I think that the point he's making is to say, uh, even people who are not of the household of faith know that they're supposed to take care of their relatives, right? And if we refuse to do that, then it makes us worse than an unbeliever, um, and that we're actually denying the faith. Um, it amounts to a denial of the gospel, for us to neglect our family in that way. So, um, in this regard, Doug, to your point, it's a huge issue then to, to discuss and to, um, to work through. So, the uh, family is to provide, if at all possible, um, for, uh, for these widows. Uh, and then he gives this first set of qualifications. This is going to get at uh, what he means by truly here. Uh, she who is truly a widow left all alone, has set her hope on God, and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. 
But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. So a couple of qualifications here. Um, those who would be enrolled would be widows who don't have family. Those, uh, that's what's described with left all alone. Um, so they, they would be those who uh, would be enrolled as uh, widows within the church. Uh, and then the second qualification, the way he puts it, is to say widows who hope in God. Um, what this doesn't mean, of course, is that this is somehow merit-based, uh, that this widow needs to do a certain number of things in order to be um, cared for in this way. What they're saying, or what Paul's saying, is that this is going to be one who is trusting in God to care for her and recognizing that God's going to show that care through his people. Um, it shows in that she prays diligently for the church night and day, that there are these supplications and prayers put forward for the church from these widows. And that's contrasted in verse 6 with one who's self-indulgent, um, who's seeking some kind of sinful self-satisfaction. Um, and her relationship to the Lord shows in that, and it's that she's dead. Um, she doesn't know the Lord. So um, here's how I think this can come about, and this will uh, be, become clearer later on in the passage. Uh, it, it could be the case that they were... Uh, that these widows who would be self-indulgent would be those who were sort of double-dipping, being cared for by their family, but also then trying to, uh, to take from the church as well. And it became this self-indulgent, uh, this display of self-indulgence in the way in which they were uh, receiving care. So that seems to be some of what's going on and why Paul would say, one who's truly a widow doesn't have family and who hopes in God. Okay, and then widows in the church. So here's how then this would work within the church. Uh, these are the specifics. Verses 9 and 10. Let a widow be enrolled if she's not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she's brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. So this word enrolled um, is saying here that, that these are the requirements to receive care. And it does seem that this was some sort of permanent arrangement that would be in place. So some have said that the, a widow within the church, some have said this is actually should be some kind of office within the church. Um, some of the reason for thinking that is that there are these sort of requirements put forward that have some kind of semblance or uh, similarity to that which has been set forward for uh, elders and deacons. Probably not that, but there is this list of qualifications um, that, that would establish this permanent arrangement with the church so that they would be enrolled and would be the recipients of this care um, from the church. So qualifications take two. Uh, the first is that they'd be 60 years of age. Um, significance of this is probably that remarriage and uh, childbearing is going to be unlikely at this age. Uh, there's not going to be any other way in which this, th these women could provide or could be cared for or provide for themselves. Wife of one husband. Um, this is going to be uh, similar to that of the requirements to an elder and a deacon that they'd be the husband of one wife. Um, obviously, uh, Paul's not prohibiting divorce for biblical grounds here. Um, he actually, or, or um, prohibiting remarriage, he's actually going to call women to that if possible. But he is saying, uh, that this is probably speaking against marital infidelity. Um, so the wife of one husband. A reputation for good works, and that's going to be articulated as, as the following here. Brought up children, which wouldn't necessarily just mean... Um, 
the woman's own biological children. It would also include orphans. Um, it might include other family members, other ways in which these women would care for, uh, for the children. Wash the feet of saints. Um, yeah, that, that might be something literal to that, but also certainly metaphorical in the way in which there would be um, uh, hospitality shown and that there would be great humility as well. Washing feet was uh, necessary in that day. It was the role of somebody with great humility who would do that, which is, if you think back to John 13 and why that's such a huge deal when Jesus does that. Uh, one who has cared for the afflicted and one who has, in summary, devoted herself to every good work. Um, and so part of, uh, part of what's at work here, too, is that the thought that uh, if and when these needs arise in the congregation, then a, a widow who has been enrolled, uh, who is praying faithfully and regularly for the church, could assist in meeting these needs. She's using her gifts within the church in this way um, to, to care for those uh, in these particular ways. So I think that's some of what's happening for these older women who would be uh, enrolled as widows. Now, situation of younger widows, uh, some issues that are, that are happening here. Uh, verses 11 and 12, it looks like Paul's saying this. Uh, if their passions draw them away from Christ after being put on the list, then they would abandon their call as widows. So, uh, verse 11, but refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Okay, this is a tough verse. Um, I, it's easy to read this and kind of think, is Paul just kind of being a jerk to the younger women? Is, is this, does this sound harsh, like he's kind of trying to put these... Um, here's what I thought when I was studying this this week. Does it, uh, does it seem different than maybe the way Jesus interacting with kind of the outcasts of society in the Gospels is portrayed? You think, I mean, does anybody kind of get that sense a little bit? Think like, is he requiring things of them that, that Jesus didn't seem to? I don't think that's what's happening here. Um, but he, 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 this is a good example back to the book When Helping Hurts as to how and why Paul wants to love wisely and care wisely for these women. Um, he's not, he can't be prohibit, prohibiting uh, a, a desire to be remarried. Because he's just about to say, actually, that's a great thing for younger widows. Do get married. What he's prohibiting here may be this concern that these women are going to fall into some sort of sexual temptation, or some think that the temptation would be there to marry unbelievers, and that that's actually what's happening here, um, and that would result in them breaking this pledge that they've made, uh, having been enrolled as widows. And so... Whatever that is, whether it's marrying unbelievers or just breaking this pledge of having been in, uh, enrolled as widows, um, it's serious, it's such a serious issue that it's amounting to denying the faith. This is another one of those uh, instances in this letter where it seems like Paul is assuming a knowledge of what's going on in, in the particulars where we wish he would have articulated more of it, um, but, but he doesn't because uh, it's a letter to Timothy, and so there's a lot that's assumed. So, their passions draw them away from Christ after being put on this list. There, there's this very real possibility that they would abandon their call as widows and ultimately abandon their um, relationship to Jesus. And then, uh, uh, verses 13 through 15, being, uh, this the other uh, aspect of their situation. Being cared for by the church lends younger widows to temptation in general. Uh, verse 13, besides that, they learn to be idlers going about from house to house, 
and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. So the solution, he says, is I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan. So what, could have, uh, what some think was occurring here is that as they go from house to house doing this visitation, the visitation changes from kind of the care that a widow could exercise and give towards these particular households and these particular people, and goes from that to, uh, to, this, uh, to being idlers, to being gossips, to being busybodies. It begins to undercut kind of the familial fabric of the church that Paul is, uh, that's a bad thing here. So, rather than helping, they become gossips, um, and so Paul calls them to marry, and then gives this other warning again in verse 15 to be careful of it. Okay, so a summary then in verse 16. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. So that's a nice summary statement that it gives, it gets at another practical reason. Um, if family can provide for these women, then that's a great thing because then it, 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 uh, it allows the church to care for those who really genuinely need to be cared for, okay? Um, helping those who genuinely need the help and not burdening them. Uh, okay, I know th- this is... Uh, this is a very specific issue that the Ephesian church is dealing with, um, and it might not apply as directly to us today for various reasons. Um, we've got really no time, but maybe just a minute or two here. Um, widows were a particular demographic needing special care and attention in that time. I, I want to put this out here as a possibility. Are, are, are there... Are there any sorts of uh, particular demographics or issues that the church faces in the twenty-one or the twenty-first century that we need to be aware of? Do you think? I don't have any really solid answers on this at all. But yeah, Paulette. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, yeah. Yeah, and that, that's right. Just because the situation is not exactly the same culturally, there's still definitely a call to, to minister uh, to widows. And to, and I think the, the helpful thing about this, maybe this is probably the best application for us, and this is why I tried to make that the focus um, Paul is recognizing specific issues within the church at Ephesus, and he's calling them to creatively care for those people in those very particular instances. Um, and so that, that's certainly kind of a general principle. Yeah, Andrew. Mm-hmm. Yes. 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 Sure. Yeah. That's a great, great point. Yeah. 
Andrew's pointed out uh, single mothers being a potential demographic for which the church needs to be particularly um, aware. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Great, great words. Yes. Yes. Yeah, Steve. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's a great one. One that, that could, uh, and we'll close with this. Uh, I don't know exactly how this would map on, but it seems like this is another complex issue. It's the question of immigration um, and the situations that I'm not talking about like political issues and our views on that kind of thing. I'm talking about families for various reasons who end up in the country, children of immigrants in that, in that way. Uh, who have very real needs and for various reasons, no fault of their own, need to be cared for. And, and that is an interesting, I'm kind of I'm thinking out loud, and it's probably not wise, but um, uh, that does seem, and even, you know, I mean, there are real mercy situations in that way that where they're not easy answers and I think could really require some creative ways in which we would care for uh, people wisely, lovingly, um, Again, not making any political statements, um, just recognizing they're real people who are in situations where they are in need. Um, okay, let me, uh, let me pray for us. We've gone over. Father, thank you for your love and care for us. Thank you that you have uh, shown us tremendous mercy. Uh, thank you that you've called us into your family, uh, that we were strangers and aliens, uh, but you have now brought us near and you have... Uh, grafted us into a family uh, to be brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers to one another. Help us, Lord, to do that and to be that here. Uh, Help us to creatively, lovingly, wisely, and sacrificially love one another and to love those around us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.